open to the book of Philippians. I had two messages prepared today, and God directed my heart towards this one. Something for which to be grateful, as you'll see in a moment. Philippians chapter 2. How many of you have ever been to uh, St. Augustine, Florida? Could I see your hands? Keep them up there for a minute, okay? Wow, a lot of you, okay. I want to go there. My son John has been, and he's told me all about it. He loves to go there. He's been, I think, twice. And so Paula and I actually had a trip planned, and something came up a couple of years ago. We had to uh, postpone that. As I understand, and I may misquote this, so please don't correct me after church. I'm, I may be, I've never been, okay? But as I understand, it is the oldest inhabited city. Now, I may not have said that correct, but it's the oldest something, uh, some particular aspect of a city in America. And the most well-known tourist attraction there was made that way because of Ponce de Leon in 1513. There was a rumor uh, by the Indians that there was something called the Fountain of Youth. And that if you drank or even supposedly bathed in it, that it would reverse the aging process and help you to sustain your youth. And so he wanted to find that place. And so they have a, uh, Paula and I were looking at pictures of it the other night uh, there. And I don't want to spoil it for you. If those of you that drank from it, you can look into it later. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a con there. But anyhow, point being, and this is, I want to take that, that concept. What, what if there really were a place? And by the way, there, there is a place called heaven. And the gospel is what gets us there where there's an everlasting fountain of youth. I was listening uh, to a Christian radio station the other day, and they were singing an old song. Man, I haven't heard that song in years. My dad and I would drive around town and sing it, the old primitive quartet. I think it's in our songbook, in fact. It's called Never Grow Old. Uh, Never grow old, we'll never grow old. In a place where we'll never grow old. Uh, they can't sing it that good. But uh, anyhow, I love that song, and I love the, the verses. And the older you get, the more you like it. But what if there were really a place like that, even for unbelievers, that you could go and uh, stay perpetually young? It really wouldn't be that good in a fallen state. But how valuable would that be? What, what would the worth of that place be if there were a true fountain of youth. And this morning, I don't want to talk to you about how to feel young or how to get young, but I want to take that idea of having access to a priceless resource. I want you to think about that. If you had a priceless resource and you had access to it, Because I want to talk to you about a priceless resource that you do have access to. It's an undervalued resource that we enjoy very much when it's present. And because it's there, especially if you grew up with it in your family or in a church, you tend to take it for granted. And that's the issue of unity. 
It's something that we all know what it is and we know what it's not when it's gone. It's something we usually don't thank God for, for the unity in our home, the unity in our marriage, the unity in our churches. But here's my question I want to pose to you. How is unity discovered in a church? Now, I often kind of redirect this to to the family, because if you don't have unity in the home, you're not going to have it in the church. But how is unity discovered in a family, a husband and a wife, between children, siblings, between parents and children? How is unity discovered in a church? And then the, the, the relative question to that is how is conflict reduced? Well, there's, if you go to the self-help section in a bookstore, it's filled up with all types of, of books, five steps to overcome conflict and, and so forth. Well, if we, if we don't learn to how to have unity in our families and our personal relationships, we're going to have self-destruction in our marriages. We're going to have self-destruction in our churches. And the name of Jesus Christ is going to be tarnished and even ruined. Some of my my worst memories. Well, I'll just I'll just say it. I'm not going to give examples. I may later, not in this message. But without question, the worst memories I have as a boy are business meetings at church. And I said that in the plural. And and the unity of our church was threatened on on many occasions. Because some some basic principles, and they weren't Robert's rules of order either. Because something about carnality rises in people when they want to save their peace. So here's my idea, and I want to get in the text here in, in the book of Philippians, and hopefully the Spirit of God will draw our hearts out. But the most important thing is not a recipe for unity. It's not five ways or five things you can do. The most important thing about unity is connecting to the source of unity. Because the source of unity makes unity possible. So what is the source of unity? What is the root of unity? Because if you're a Christian... The root of unity is available for your marriage, for your family, and for your church. You do not have to live in conflict. Now, you will experience conflict. Jesus said you would from the world, the flesh, and the devil. You will experience conflict. But many of you, many of us, live in consistent, unnecessary conflicts and tensions because we do not know how to live in unity But before you go into the the practice and the mechanics of it, and God gives us some here, you've got to understand the source of unity. So I want you to look in your Bible, and let's read just a beautiful passage. I love these verses in Philippians chapter 2. Really, one of my life verses is here. I have a lot of life verses, but here's one. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, 
Paul, who's a human author, he says, fulfill ye my joy. That's interesting because he helped start this church. And when the people are not in unity, it affects the leader. Not just the leader, but others around them. He says, fulfill ye my joy. This is a joy book, and part of that is, is unity. That ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each, that is each person, each individual, esteem other better or more important than themselves. And this is a verse that's very important to me, Philippians 2, 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So I want to talk to you this morning on this subject, the source, the source of unity. We're all caught up with blessings today. We want to receive blessings. Brother Theron did a good job in our class, as he always does, and talked about the Abrahamic covenant a little bit and the blessings of that, the unconditional aspect of it. And we're the beneficiaries of that in the book of Genesis chapter 12. And I like to be blessed. But I think it, it, we're so occupied with blessings that we don't understand if we, if we, rather than seeking the blessing, seek the source of the blessing. Don't seek a blessing, seek the favor of God. That's different. Just seek, quit seeking blessing. Quit trying to get blessed and just seek God's favor on your life. This is a secular quote. I'm going to adjust it in a minute. You'll see where I'm going with this. Can you hear me back there? Or am I okay? All right. Someone said, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. I'm going to adjust it, okay? Give a person a blessing and he enjoys it for a time. Teach a man where to find blessings, a source of blessings, and he's blessed for eternity. That has to do with a source of blessings. Now, some of you have grown up in peaceful families. Your mom and dad got along. They didn't fight. They didn't argue. You never heard them raise their voices. Some of you didn't. Your mom and dad argued in front of you. They raised their voices. Maybe your parents divorced and you were caught in the middle of that. And some of you married someone that had the opposite home. And you had a peaceful home and they didn't. And some of those, I'm going to use the word ideals, that's not the correct word. But some of those environments and expectations collide in marriage. But what I want to say is this, is that when you grow up in a peaceful environment, you take that for granted. You think, well, everybody enjoys this, but they don't. And you think, well, everybody gets along with their brother and sister, but they don't. And I don't say that to make, make you arrogant. I say that. To you to, to, to stop and pause, to sail us, Psalm 68, 19, to stop and pause. 
Saying, wait, wait. God's been good to me. What is the source of this blessing? What's the source of this unity? Some of you have been in good churches. Not just where they had good doctrine. And were effective in reaching lost people. But where there was an environment of love. Where there was an environment of welcoming people. And unnecessary conflict was not abounding. But some of you haven't. I'll be out visiting sometimes and invite people to church. Knock on a door and invite someone to church. And immediately there's a resistance. And often it's someone that has gone to church and they've had a bad church experience. And almost always if I have the opportunity, I just apologize. So I, I want to apologize. I don't know what happened, but I, I am so sorry. Because somebody either hasn't apologized or the bitterness is so settled in. You haven't just stopped to pause to thank God for the heritage that you have. Someone has guarded the unity in your family, your mother, your father, your grandparents. Somebody has tended the unity in the local church. It didn't just happen. But what they did is they understood the source of the unity. Tapping into any source in any area of life is fundamental to experiencing the long-term benefits. It's not just enjoying a benefit because a benefit dries up. But when you know the source, you can have the benefit again and again and again. What is, what is the source of unity? I hope you want it. Because it's sweet. It's wonderful. For a Christian, God is our source in unity. Now, before you turn me off, because that's not a real ornate statement, you need to marinate in that. God is your source in unity. Your source is not a what. It's not an organizational chart. It's organic, but it's not an organization. It's not mechanical. It's not manipulative. The source of unity for a Christian is not a what. It's a who. And that who is a presence of God. Now you see that here in the text. And look in Philippians chapter 2, if you would notice in verse 1, Philippians 2, 1. Four times the same word is used, and it's the word if. Philippians 2, 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now, the resources for unity, we're going to talk about those later, are there. But you don't start applying the resources, which are consolation, comfort of love, fellowship, and bowels and mercies, or affections and mercies. We'll just touch on those momentarily. You don't apply those without, without the, the source, which is God. He's the one that, that grants those. 
He's the one that enables us. And we live, we live beneath our privileges, not just in the church. I'm not trying to make my job easy. I want you to have a good home. I came across a, a wonderful quote by Jim Elliott. The, I think he was 28. He was very young when he was martyred by the Indians in South America. I was telling Paula uh, this past week, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm such a simple person. I'm just, I'm just a simple person. And it's amazing what God wants to do with your life. And I love this quote by, by Jim Elliott. He said, he said, forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know an extraordinary God. Elliot said, forgive me for being so ordinary when I know an extraordinary God. Someone said that the difference in ordinary and extraordinary is extra. Well, the difference in your life or the difference in a home that has unity and the church that has unity is extra. But the extra isn't motivation or manipulation. It's not organization. It's God. It is the presence of God. Now, when you see here these qualities in verse 1, and you see the word if, you tend to think of that sense. Or you, you think conditionally, if, if there's consolation, if. But the, the word if can also have the idea of sense. Since this is true, we can extract a principle. So, not if this is true, then this is true. If this is true, because you need this foundational principle, it assumes, and stay with me, it assumes that something is already true. For example, if God is true, His promises will not fail. We're assuming God's true, not, well, if He's true, is He true? No, if God is true, well, yeah, I believe that. Well, His promises won't fail. So the word if in that idea has a word of sense. It's not conditional on my behavior, but on his character. So when you read, and I'm not changing the scripture, I'm changing the usage of the word. It's important. You'll see where I'm going with this. Now look at Philippians 2.1 again. Since there be therefore any consolation in Christ, since any comfort of love, since any fellowship of the Spirit, since any bowels and mercies. So he's not saying if they're there. The usage of the word if has the idea of since there, because it can be used like that. Now let me show you another way, because I don't want you to sit there and say, well, you're changing the Bible. Uh, When Satan tempted Jesus and he took him up in the mountain, in the wilderness there, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, And the tempter came to Jesus and said, If, if thou be the Son of God. Remember, he'd been fasting 40 days. No water, no bread, no food, nothing. A total fast. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And a few verses down in Matthew 4, 6, Satan said, if thou be the Son of God, and he's on, he's took him to the temple, on top of the temple there in Jerusalem. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, 
he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And he left out some phrases here. He misquoted scripture, the devil did. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think. I, I don't think that Satan would say, now, now if, you're, if, you're really, if you're really the son of God. Now, I ask you a question. Did the devil not know who Jesus was? He created him. When, when Jesus, the Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him and for Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He created the world, and He created the angels, and He created Lucifer when He was a good angel. Satan knew He would. When He was saying, if, or second question, was He trying to get Jesus to doubt His identity? And some good people think so. Well, that's Matthew 4, 3. Just a few verses earlier, Matthew 3, 17. The Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus knew his identity. Let me tell you what I believe, and it's important as we lay this foundation before I give the application to the message here. I think what the devil was saying, not if, if you're the Son of God, He's saying, since you're the Son of God, if, if you're the Son of God, since you're the Son of God, eat some food. But don't just eat the food. I want you to use your miraculous power outside the will of God. And I want you to live as God rather than a man, which Jesus lived his entire life as a human being in submission to the plan of God. That wasn't the Father's will. Then he took him up. To, to the highest point in Jerusalem, said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. The ain't, that wasn't the Father's will. He wanted him to get outside the will of God and to live as God rather than deity. And Jesus refused to do it. So I'm, I'm using those examples because it's important to lay this foundation there in Philippians 2 with these four ifs, that it is assuming that these things are true. So it is God that enables a church to have unity. It, it will, if, if you want unity between you and your wife, between you and your kids, your brother and sister, who do you have conflict with? Well, if you're, if you're hearing this message, God's giving you the, the responsibility to, take, to initiate that. He's the source well, you don't know what they said. You don't know, but, but if you know the Lord, if you know the Lord, He is the source. But that person in that church, they fill in the blank. No, if you know God, God is your encourager. He is your enabler. He is your life. So, again, look at Philippians 2.1. If there, therefore, be any consolation... In Christ. I'm not changing the words. I hope I explained this. It's assuming that it's there, not if. Since, since there's consolation, you know where it is? It's in Christ. Console means encourage. Now here it's very explicit and, and it assumes the same is true here. If any comfort of love, the comfort of love is in Christ. If, since there's any fellowship 
of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. True fellowship comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Very detailed. And then it assumes it in verse, the last part of verse. If, since there's any bowels, that means affections and mercies, which the Holy Spirit of God will give to you. And he will help you. But you cannot have these qualities. I'm going to just touch on them in a surface way and, and, and take a deeper dive on them. But my purpose this morning is to say, you, you can't have these if you're not connected to the source. If you don't have the favor of God on your life. And if you don't have these, you're not going to have any unity. It's all surface. It's all decorated. You know, some churches, we're a friendly church. Well, that just means you have ushers shaking hands. Is this a church where I can make friends? That's a different question. Do you really care about me? See, there are deeper issues here. This past year, almost a year ago in January, I wrote down that I wanted to study John chapter 15. John 15, especially the first part of it, is about the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine, we're the branch. The vine is where the life is. This is where the source, this is the supply of life. The branch has no life without the vine, without the stem, without the tree. Take a branch off, it's just dead. But the fruit, the fruit comes on the branch because of the life that comes up through the vine. And that's where the grapes and the olives come from. So you have you have the source, and then you have the branches that are dependent upon the vine. And he Jesus said, I am the true vine, and you're the branches. So if I get disconnected from the source, not only am I not going to bear fruit, one of those fruits, James chapter 3, and here in Philippians chapter 2, one of those fruits is unity. Unity is always a byproduct. You don't find unity, unity finds you. There, you know, you ever met somebody and you walk away, and this is true in James 3, the last few verses, you said, man, they're just easy to get along with. Easy to be entreated is what it says in James 3. They're just, e- well, they just walk with God. They're not easily offended. Great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. They're not petty. They're not looking for an opportunity to be offended. It's, it's, they know the source. They're connected to the source. See? It happens in your family. It happens in the church. There's a lot of things I want to say. I don't have time this morning. There's a book I want to recommend to you. Some of you may have it, but Andrew Murray wrote a book called Abide in Christ. I just want to read a couple of paragraphs. It's not long. But he talks about this abiding, this vine and the branch, the relationship to the branch and the vine. Would you listen to this? I don't like to read things. It's just a little bit. It's not long, but just listen to this. He says, this parable that is in John 15 of of the branch and the vine teaches us the nature of the union. I like that word union, the connection. The connection between the vine and the branch is a living one. It involves life. No external temporary union will suffice 
No work of man can affect it. I I guess I could, but if I started running around on the platform, you say, Rick is drunk today. What is wrong with him? Someone said one one time that truth is preaching is truth delivered through personality. That's not who I am. God, God will work through me who I am and make me a better person in that way. No work of man can affect the branch, whether an original branch or an engrafted one, is such only by the Creator's own work in virtue of which the life, the sap, the fatness, and the fruitfulness of the vine communicate themselves in the branch. And so it is with the believer too. His union with the Lord is no work of human wisdom or human will, but an act of God by which the closest and most complete life union is effected between the Son of God and the saint. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. The same Spirit which dwelt and still dwells in the Son becomes the life of the believer. It's His life in us. And the unity of that one spirit and the fellowship of the same life which is in Christ, he, that is us, we are one with him. As between the vine and the branch, it is a life union that makes them one. And this is the source of, listen, stop trying to have unity. Just stop trying to get along. Just just God, I, I need you in my life. I, I need you to help me and connect connect with him. Now let's look at it in these qualities very quickly and see how this works. First of all, in Philippians 2, 1, if or since there therefore be any consolation in Christ, we have consolation. The word consolation is used several times in the Bible. It means to comfort, but it specifically means to comfort by words. You comfort people by your words, by what you say. It's not spooky. It's not some generic thing. The comfort comes by the words. Now watch this. But these, he, here he says, any consolation comes in Christ. It's his words that comfort me. And in fact, the entire Godhead consoles us. Let me give you some verses. Romans fifteen five. Now the God of patience and consolation. There it is. Grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. He's a God of patience. He helps you to be patient with people. He is a God of consolation, a God of consolation, of comfort. He comforts with his word. He comforts you when you read his words. He takes up scripture verses. When I'm preaching, I will say something or read a verse, and he will bring other things to your mind, and he will comfort you and grant you to be like-minded with other people with whom you have conflicts to correct and also to prevent them. It's used of God the Father, Second Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. 
This morning I read 2 Corinthians 1, the first part again. And four times there it talks about consolation. Your consolation is increased by your suffering. Because God consoles you. He speaks comfort to you. It doesn't mean you stop suffering. But He consoles you. The Holy Spirit consoles you. Acts 9.31 Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and were edified walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says they were multiplied. That's interesting. It wasn't in conflict. Because they, they, they were comforted by the Holy Ghost. There was a man when... Joseph and Mary took Jesus to be dedicated in the temple. There was a man there named Simeon. He was a godly man. And God had told him something. It's in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. For the comfort of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him, that is Simeon. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he did. But Luke 2.25 says he was, they, they denoted the coming of Christ as the consolation of Israel. And he does come as a judge and as a king and he does bring a sword. But they were looking for someone that could, that would come and bring consolation to them. Here's what I'm saying. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if you want to be consoled and learn to be a consoler and speak words of comfort, you're going to have to learn it from Christ. I love this verse. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting, everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. This is his ministry. Listen, God never discourages anybody. He convicts us, but he convicts us to bring us back to himself, to help us. He comforts us, he consoles us, he encourages us. It's part of his nature. I don't want to use these words, but I'm going to use them because you understand them. God wants to inspire you. He wants to motivate you. He wants to help you. He has words to He has words to comfort you. And you gain these words of comfort as you spend time with Him, as you stay connected to the vine. Well, you know, I went to church. I just didn't get anything out of it. Were you connected? Have you been connected with Him this week? And then we have comfort of love in Christ. Verse 1 again, if any comfort of love. And it's implied there that that is in Christ. Any comfort of love. Now the word love there is the word agape. And those of you that know the Bible know there are several words for love in the Bible. The word agape is the highest word for love. It means to sacrifice For the good of another person, it is a supernatural love. It's only used of God. It is used of our responsibility as Christians as the Holy Spirit works in us. But it's beyond anything that a person can do. But here's what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say if any love. 
It's this comfort of love. It attaches comfort with love. Now, the word comfort there in verse 1 is related to the word console, but it's associated with love. Okay, watch this. Love serves and love does, but love comforts. And the difference in the word console in verse 1 and the word comfort is this. The word console speaks, and the word comfort here means to be near. It means I'm close to you. And it means that when, when trouble comes, I'm going to be there. Now, here in the text, if any comfort of love, that's Christ. You know who shows up when you're in trouble? It's Jesus. And I learned this quality from Jesus. He shows up. If any comfort of love. And he, he encourages me. And he helps me. In John chapter 15 and verse 10, if you keep my commandments, Jesus said, you shall abide in my love. You abide in my word, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. You abide in my words, Jesus said, then you express and you experience my love. You you don't separate those things. And in the very next verses, our Lord says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. And that your joy might be full. Now look at this. This is my commandment. That ye love one another. And there's not a period there. As as I have loved you. Supernatural love. As I have loved you. Agape love. It is the comfort of love. As you abide in Christ and in his word. There is a comfort of love. Just like Jesus shows up. When an ambulance shows up on a scene, you show up and you learn to comfort. Not like Job's friends. They did good at first in Job 1 and then it kind of got off mark. That's what comfort of you learn that from Jesus. He is the source of unity. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, it gives nine qualities, is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And it says, against such there is no law. I used to read that, and everybody kind of knows those nine qualities, but what does that mean? Against such there is no law. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians, it's a book about legalism, about being saved by the law and being sanctified by the law. And he says, you're not just saved by grace, but you're sanctified by grace. And the reason the Holy Spirit put that in there, against such there is no law. There is no law that can sanctify you. There is no self-effort that can produce fruit. Fruit comes when you abide. Fruit comes when you abide. And the, the very first manifestation of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Some writers think that every other expression of the fruit is an expression of love. I won't go into that now because of time. This this is the heart of God. This is who He is. He, He shows up. 
He doesn't just speak words of peace and consolation. But he loves, he, he agapes, he shows up for your best good. But he's there to comfort you. He serves you. But he shows up for you. John 3.16, you know the verse, but it says, it doesn't say, let me tell what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, for God loved the world. It says, God so loved the world. There, there, is, a, there is a soul love beyond anything natural. That God has. He is the source. He is the source of this kind of love. First John 4 and verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This is not a personality characteristic. Are you, are you with me? Remember the vine? You have the life. I remember people say, oh boy, when you, when you are walking with God, you get the power of the Holy Spirit to win souls. Yes, you do. And it, period there. But you get the power of the Holy Spirit to have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And this is what the abiding does. It connects you so that it transforms you to help you transform your environment. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, the Bible says, And hope maketh not ashamed. The word ashamed often means it doesn't disappoint. Like, oh man, I'm ashamed. I I expected this and I, I didn't. Hope never disappoints you. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I want you to notice those two words, shed abroad. It means to gush. It means to pour out. It means the moment you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit of God. And implanted in you was the pouring out, not just of His presence, but the pouring out of His nature. And you... You receive a desire to love God and to love people, especially God's people. And the closer you get to God, the more you want to care for people. And the more, watch this, the more you want to console them, the more you want to practice the comfort of love. But I I could have gone through this and just said, well, here's what you do. You get in the car, you forget it tomorrow because you're not connected to the source. Love comforts. And this is part of the matter of preserving unity. But you will not do this if you're not connected to the source. In Colossians chapter 2, notice in verse 1. Paul said, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. Now, there it is again, the comfort and the love. The comfort is knit together with the love. You see that? Comfort and love. That's what he's saying. God, and Paul said, I have this for you. He doesn't say it, but we know he got this from God. The words knit together there mean to join together, and it has the idea of coming together because of affection. Affection. 
God gave him that affection. And God can do this for you. And I have some verses we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2. And the, the early church had this. But they were able to practice this because of their presence and awareness. You can't be near someone if you're not with them. You can't love someone if you're not able to speak with them. And sometimes you can use text messages and calls and emails. I, I understand that now. That's a wonderful thing. But God wants to do this as you abide in Christ. There was a man that used to come to preach to us when I was in college. Jack Hudson, he used to say this. Make much of Jesus and he will make much of you. And I think people like that. I liked it, but I think they liked it because, oh, if I make much of Jesus, he will, he will get me a big platform one day. And that's not what he was talking about. Make much of Jesus and he will make much of himself in you as you're attached to the vine. Consolation, comfort of love. And then we have fellowship. Notice in verse 1 there. If any fellowship of the Spirit or sense, since there's fellowship and the source of fellowship is, is rooted in the Holy Spirit of God. The word fellowship is kind of a misnomer. Tonight we'll have uh, some things to eat over there and typically through the years. Hey, come to this activity. We're going to have food, fun, and fellowship. And we're associating Eating with fellowship. Well, that's eating. And you can have fellowship, and it's a good place. They practice in the book of Acts over meals. It's a good place to have fellowship. But it's possible to have a meal and not have fellowship. The word fellowship means to to communicate based on what you have in common. And the Holy Spirit is the one that brings those things in common. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, the Bible says, Because your sons are children of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here's a verse with the Trinity. You have God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son of God. And for every believer, God has sent forth the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you know Him, into your hearts, and the Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father, I cannot do justice to that word. Some people have said it, it means Papa. Some have said it means Daddy. And, it, and some people, they get up and say, oh, that's not what it means. And it, it's an Aramaic word. Well, okay, it, it's, it's hard to explain. Let me put it this way. It's an intimate term. If you watch the old movies in the 1800s, not 1800 movies, but dated to that time. They used to call, the children had a very formal relationship with their father, and that's what they called father. You know, it was very distant and formal. That's not what that word is. There, there's a connection there. And the Holy Spirit comes in, and I know that I am His, and He is mine. And, and you have Him, the Holy Spirit of God. And He cries, watch this, we have the same Son, the Son of God. We have the same Father. We have the same Holy Spirit that indwells us. We have these things in common. This is the basis of our fellowship, not this building. And you don't even have to be in the same church. You don't even have to agree 
on everything jot and tittlewise with doctrine. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. And I will give them one heart, them, plural, one heart, a group. You talk about the nation of Israel, but it applies to us here. I will give this group one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take a, the stony heart out of your flesh. This happens at conversion. And I will give them a heart of flesh. Where you can feel something. Where you can feel God. Where you can feel the, the burdens of other people. You don't have to be an extrovert, but there's something within you that stirs. And you have this, this love for God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, one spirit are we all, one spirit group, all the corporate body baptized into one body. Now we are the local expression of that body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, that's a racial divide. Whether we bond or free, that's a financial divide. We're all different. We have different amount of money. We have different races. But if you have the Holy Spirit of you, you've been baptized into this body of Christ. The Bible says we've all been made to drink into one. What's his? He's the unifier. One spirit. We're called to fellowship with the spirit. And as watch as we fellowship with him, because the Bible says in Philippians 2, 1, since any fellowship of the spirit, he's the source. He's the source. It increases the quantity of. And the, and the quality of the fellowship that I have with other people. And the conversations are better. I don't mean intellectual-wise. They're deeper. They're heavier. They're weightier. They're more meaningful. But I love the phrase there in verse 13, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. I want to ask you a question before we close here. Have you been drinking of the Spirit this week? Have you engaged with Him? Have you been connected? Have you been connected with Him? Are you listening to Him? And then, last of all, there in verse 1, if or since any bowels and mercies, and I believe he's alluding to the Holy Spirit, the word bowels there, in the Greek, it's the word spleen. It refers to the intestines. You know, there are cultures today in Mid-Eastern and in some African countries. We even say it today, I love you with all of my heart. But people, some have said, I love you with all of my kidney. You know, we would laugh at that. Well, they would laugh at us for saying, I love you with all of my heart. Because we associate the heart with affection. Well, the reason they use the word bow is that's where people felt things with feeling. And the word bows, listen, it has the idea, and it's used often in the Bible. I'm not going to go through it here. With tenderness, affection, and sympathy. Are you a tender man? Are you an affectionate woman? Are you sympathetic? To the needs and the hurts of others. Well, no, you know, I'm just, I'm German. And are you a Christian? The Holy Spirit can do this for you. And then he says, watch this. 
bowels or, or affections and mercies, plural. The word mercies there means to have compassion and pity, but it's, it's a heavy word. It's a mercy that can be felt. And I wrote this down. It's the idea of a deep empathy, a deep empathy. And we can all grow in this area. But this is all part, this is all part of unity because I'm going to tell you, Sometimes the reason you and I say things that we never should say is because we don't have affection and mercy. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. If I knew that, I wouldn't have said it. Well, maybe if you'd have just thought about it, you would have known it. But we're so busy with our schedules and we don't ever stop to just think about people in general. During the week, it's the Holy Spirit of God may prompt us to sit in their seat. You know, I probably ought not say that. God knows I've done that. I've violated that. But I don't want to do that. And then all of a sudden, the unity and the relationship within the church is disturbed. And you can correct it. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul said to the church, for God is my record. What he's about to say, he has to call God to account because it's it's so astounding. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels. Look at this. There's a word again. The affections of Jesus Christ. I long after you just like Jesus does. Paul saying, I have the same tenderness and love that Jesus did. Now, you know why he could say that? Because he, Jesus was loving them through Paul. There's a verse I want to show you on the screen. If you can look that up there, Zach, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15. Galatians five fifteen. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You think you're snipping at other people, but really you're going to devour yourself and destroy your family, your marriage, your church. He said, this I say, then walk in the spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. You're either going to live by by the way you want to live, which is destructive, or you're going to live the way God wants you to, which for the purpose of our message is, is with unity. It's a powerful witness to the world. You say, Preacher, that, that sounds so weak. I don't want to live that way. Andrew Murray wrote this. It's not long. I want you to listen to this. This touched me deeply last night. The Christian often tries to forget his weakness, but God wants us to remember it, to feel it deeply. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it. God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it. The Christian mourns over his weakness. 
Christ teaches his servant to say, I take pleasure in infirmities, which, which means sickness. Most gladly will I glory in my infirmities. The Christian thinks his weaknesses are his greatest hindrance in the life and service of God. God tells us his weaknesses are his greatest hindrance. So God tells us that it is his weaknesses are the secret of his strength and success. It is our weakness, hardly accepted and continually realized, that gives our claim and access to the strength of him who has said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Connect to the source of unity. You, you can strive, you can try, but you can't fix things. And let God, let God fix your environment. You'll never have lasting unity until you walk with God. Are you saved? Are you saved? And do you have a personal walk with God on a daily basis? Should you bow your heads with me if you would?